The ancient prophets of Israel prophesied of a time when the promised land would be desolate and bereft of her children, and that the Gentiles would come into the land and report the apparent forsaking of the Creator's covenant with his chosen people. But those prophets also declared that the sons of Israel would come back to their homeland in the last days, and that the Gentiles would come to Israel from the ends of the earth and cry out in repentance for the pagan traditions that they inherited from their forefathers. This day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. This is the greatest story never told. It's all about Yeshua, the prophet, the promised Messiah. Join me here in the land of Israel as we take a chronological and archeological journey through the Gospels. You have never seen anything like this before. I'm Michael Rood, prepare for a Rood Awakening. Yeshua's baptism begins an unbroken chain of events that follows Yeshua for the next 70 weeks, 490 days. Living in Israel for 20 years and the Galilee for the past 12, I know the ancient Roman roads and cart paths that still link the villages of Israel today. I know how long it takes to walk from one point to another. In this series, we will follow Yeshua's travels as detailed by all four gospel authors. These accounts are without error or contradiction, but sometimes they contradict the impressions we inherited from our religious systems and Hollywood. I realize that most Western Gentile Christians were raised with the notion that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. So was I. It is as much a part of Western Christian culture as Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and Halloween and just as contrived as forcing Yeshua's three days and three nights in the grave into the pagan festivals of Dagon, the Assyrian fish god Friday, and Easter, the Babylonian sex goddess Sunday. What I didn't know until after more than 30 years of historical and biblical research was that one man in the fourth century fabricated a three and a half year ministry of Jesus out of the thin blue sky. For more than 300 years, there was not one dissenting opinion voiced among the early church historians or the disciples of the disciples of Yeshua himself that Jesus' ministry was about one year. In the fourth century, one man, the court bishop of Constantine, was attempting to decipher the enigmatic 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, a prophecy that even Sir Isaac Newton was unable to solve. His solution? He said Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, which is one half of a week. Since when is three and a half years one half of a week? It immediately alerts the Bible student that Eusebius was attempting to decipher Daniel's 70-week prophecy. It was a wild and unsupportable assumption that ignored more than 300 years of unchallenged testimony from the sapient witnesses. Eusebius was futilely attempting to get the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy fulfilled, so that Constantine, a biblically illiterate, Mithra-worshiping pagan, could supposedly reign as the vicar of Christ from his millennial throne. 
Denying more than 300 years of unified testimony, Eusebius came up with a hypothesis which is not only unprovable, it completely destroyed any possibility of understanding the gospel narrative. We are left with faith-shaking contradictions as two entire years of dead silence are imaginatively inserted into the gospel record. In the century following Eusebius, scribes inserted eight words into later copies of Greek text attempting to legitimize his unique eisegetic interpretation. Those eight words added a fictitious feast of Passover in the sixth chapter of John at the time of the feeding of the 5,000, at the end of the summer. But Passover is six months later in the spring. The next event in the seventh chapter of John is the Feast of Tabernacles, again, six months after Passover. The other gospels have the feeding of the 5,000 at the end of the summer, and they are on their way up to the Feast of Tabernacles in the same chapter, the very next week. Neither Yeshua, the population of the Galilee, nor the Pharisees are at Jerusalem for this fictitious Passover of John chapter six, verse four. By adding a Passover at the time of the feeding of the 5,000, an entire year of dead silence is introduced into the gospel record. All of the early church fathers and historians of the first three centuries either stated plainly or never contradicted that Jesus' ministry was about one year. Yeshua goes up to Passover in John chapter two when he meets with Nicodemus. He goes up to Passover in John chapter 12 when he was crucified. It would take a little more than one year to fulfill those two Passovers. If the historians and church fathers of the first three centuries had a third Passover in their text of John, none could have been so foolish as to not understand that it would have taken well over two years to fulfill three Passovers. Yet they all said his ministry was about one year. Copies of manuscripts that predate the Eusebian forgeries still exist in museums. In these ancient manuscripts, there is no Passover in John chapter six. No one goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover of John 6, 4. Yeshua feeds 5,000 and then Four days later, another 4,000 with leavened barley loaves during what would have been the Feast of Unleavened Bread, matzah. The Capernaum synagogue was packed with those who do not go up to a feast. That week, Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to challenge Yeshua on why none of his thousands of disciples were washing their hands with the two-handled Negelvesser before they ate leavened bread. No one goes to Jerusalem for this phantom Passover feast, because it was added to the text by Gentiles who know nothing about the feast of the Lord. Any Jew could see right through their charade if they bothered to read the text and think. There is no question among Bible scholars, it is a well-known fact that words and phrases have been added and removed from various texts of the Gospels and epistles to support the positions of theologians of past millennia. This one book gives me access to more than 5,000 manuscripts and it documents more than 250,000 variations. I have spent more than 45 years analyzing those variations and I have solved every apparent contradiction in the Gospels. 
but it took more than 40 years to do so. Today, the text of the Bible is ignored. Sheep will swallow whatever they are fed by their shepherds. They don't even read the scriptures in their own language, much less investigate the manuscripts of antiquity. Our goal is to get to the truth, not defend ours or anyone else's denominational predispositions. If our interpretation destroys the continuity of the scriptures, it is our interpretation that is an error, not the words of the men of God who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Netanel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. As the disciples prepare to commemorate Purim, the story of how Queen Esther's bravery saved the Israelites from certain death, Yeshua receives word that his friend Lazarus is gravely ill. Yet Yeshua does not come to his aid until all seems lost just like the story of Purim. This month, Michael Rood presents an exclusive new teaching, Purim, the Lazarus Parable. This is one of the many times in the Gospel of John where a scribe added in a description that was not in the original text. Purim, the Lazarus Parable is Michael Rood's new teaching from the 20 episode Love Gift teaching series. And the only way you can get it is with your Love Gift donation in March. We have to understand what they, the scribes and Pharisees, teach. You know, they who will not see the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand what they're saying. The Torah says one thing, but how they read it can be something different. Own Purim, the Lazarus parable, right now, when you give a love gift donation of $50 or more. Or donate $100 or more to get this new teaching, plus the story of Esther on a scroll, a Megillah concealed in an elegant wooden case. This scroll includes the entire biblical book of Esther, English on one side, Hebrew on the other, illustrated in full color classic artwork. And the case features a leather-like wrap with gold embossing and a metallic seal depicting the story of Esther. Get this attractive showpiece now, plus Michael Rue's new teaching, Purim, the Lazarus parable. Whatever you give away, whatever you forfeit for me, you'll receive back a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Act now to get Michael Rood's new teaching, Purim, the Lazarus Parable, plus the Scroll of Esther. Hurry, this offer is only available in March. Make your love gift donation now, online or by phone. Michael Rood's Message of Truth is broadcast all over the world, but none of it happens without the monthly financial support of our Ambassador Club members. And right now, membership has more benefits than ever. I'm giving into a ministry that is helping to feed other people that have the same hunger that I do. Join now and Michael Rood will send you the Ambassador Club Welcome Kit, an exclusive messenger bag stocked with teaching DVDs, Red Sea Crossing cards, and more. You'll also receive ambassador-only bonus gifts whenever you make a separate donation to receive the monthly love gift. Best of all, you'll get ambassador-only sale prices in our online bookstore several times throughout the year, plus exclusive invitations to Ambassador Club functions at a Rude Awakening events. All it takes is a modest commitment of $100 per month or an annual gift of $1,200. Call now or visit the Rude Awakening website to join the Ambassador Club.
We now continue with the chronology of the Gospel of John. It is Sunday, the second day of the first month, the 43rd day of Yeshua's 490-day ministry. It was late in the day, about the 10th hour, when Yohanan saw Yeshua again. He immediately told two of his closest disciples, Andrew and John, that this Yeshua was the Lamb of God of whom he had spoken the previous day. That was the last day that they followed Yohanan, and the day that they began to travel with Yeshua. John chapter one, verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to locate his brother Shimon. We have found the Messiah. Then Andrew brought him to Yeshua. When Yeshua saw him, he said, you are Shimon, the son of Yonah. You shall be called Kepha. Yeshua had a brother named Shimon, and so a friendly nickname would avoid any ambiguity among the disciples as they traveled together. Petros in Greek means rocky. Kepha in Aramaic means rocky. Evan in the ancient Hebrew Matthew text means rocky. Shimon didn't seem to mind being called rocky. Verse 43, the following day, Yeshua went into the Galilee and found Philip. He said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the village of Andrew and Kepha. The day following was now day 44 of Yeshua's ministry. It is the third day of the first month, Monday, March 31st, just 11 days before Passover in Jerusalem. Yohanan and his disciples were at Beit Abarah, which is about five miles south of the Sea of Galilee. They probably saw Philip just before dawn as he was fishing the south end of the lake. Since fishermen can only work at night and must retire before the sun illuminates their nets, they may have joined Philip in his boat early that morning to travel up to their village on the northeast shore of Lake Canaret. It would be much preferred over trekking through the swampy south end of the lake on foot and then having to walk past the stinking swine herds of the pagan temple of Dionysus beneath the Roman city of Sicita. When they got back to their hometown, the fishing village there at Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael, Nathaniel, and announced, we have found him of whom Moses in the Torah and also the prophets did write, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Yosef. Nathanael quipped, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael approaching and said, behold an Israelite in whom there is indeed no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Yeshua answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Yeshua said, because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believed, you shall see even greater things than these. When Yeshua said that he saw Netanel under the fig tree, he could have been referring to a recent demonstration of Netanel's honesty, or he could have recounted his entire life story from the time that Netanel was a young child playing under the fig tree. Whichever it was, Netanel knew that Yeshua could not have known what he articulated without having a divine connection. Truth I say to you, Netanel, this is nothing. Hereafter, you shall see heaven open 
in the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Okay, mother, I'll provide some wine, but I'll do it my way. Yeshua, please don't mess with the rabbis tonight, please. As the disciples prepare to commemorate Purim, Yeshua receives word that his friend Lazarus is gravely ill. Yet Yeshua does not come to his aid until all seems lost, just like the story of Purim. This month, Michael Root presents an exclusive new teaching, Purim, the Lazarus parable. This is one of the many times in the Gospel of John where a scribe added in a description that was not in the original text. Own Purim, the Lazarus parable right now when you give a love gift donation of $50 or more or donate $100 or more to get this new teaching plus the story of Esther on a scroll concealed in an elegant wooden case. We have to understand what they, the scribes and Pharisees, teach. You know, they who will not see the kingdom of heaven, we have to understand what they're saying. The Torah says one thing, but how they read it can be something different. Act now to get Michael Rood's new teaching, Purim, the Lazarus parable, plus the scroll of Esther. Hurry. The lives of Israeli victims hang critically in the balance, following events of terror, violence, and war. But there's another painful problem, men, women, and children living in poverty. And you can be there for them. Visit us online at thelydiaproject.com. You'll find personal stories from the people who need you and the information you need to make a difference in their lives. When you give to The Lydia Project, you enable us to send help. Emotional and spiritual encouragement are especially needed during these critical days of recovery. Your support enables our ground team in the land of Israel to function as Yehovah intended, providing for the wounded soldiers, widows, orphans, and the poor. Help Israel give to The Lydia Project. The third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The third day of the week is Yom Shlishi. This is the day after Yeshua met Netanel in Bethsaida. It is now Tuesday, April 1st, 27 of the Common Era. It is the fourth day of the first month, 10 days before Passover. There was a marriage in Cana, about a half day's walk from Bethsaida. On the third day, Yom Shlishi, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, was there. And Yeshua and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. Weddings were planned a year in advance, and Yeshua would have been invited to the wedding months earlier. It has been nearly two months since he left his home in Netzeret for his mikveh in the Yarden. They ran out of wine, so the mother of Yeshua said to him, they have no more wine. Yeshua said to her, my lady, why should this be a concern of mine? It is not yet my time. Yeshua's mother is in a position of responsibility at this wedding, and the servants are at her command. When she informs Yeshua that they've run out of wine, he responds to her in respect of her official capacity. Not as the King James Version reads, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. No, Yeshua is not barking at his mother. He said, my lady, 
And then he reminds her that according to ancient Israeli wedding custom, he is ranked lower on the guest list and is not among those who are expected to provide wine for the wedding. We are not privy to their continued conversation, but I can imagine, okay, mother, I'll provide some wine, but I'll do it my way. Yeshua, please don't mess with the rabbis tonight, please. Mother, I wouldn't need to do this if others had taken their responsibilities seriously. Just tell the servants to do as I tell them, and all will be well, if they can keep their mouths shut. Finally, Miriam turns to the servants. Whatever he tells you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots for the purifying of the Jews. Each pot held about two or three liters apiece. The inclusion of stone water pots tells us that this was a Pharisee wedding, and the master of ceremonies is the head rabbi of their synagogue. These six stone water pots were used for a Pharisee purification ritual, which is never mentioned in the Torah, but is meticulously detailed in the ancient Talmudic writings of the Pharisee sages. Water is usually carried from the well in a wineskin or ceramic pot. If the container had been used for wine in the past, the flavor of grapes could still be present. But if water has the slightest taste of wine or vinegar, it is deemed to be ceremonially unclean for a Pharisee wedding and cannot be used unless the water is sanctified according to ritual. According to rabbinic law, stone cannot contract ritual impurity. So wine-tainted water must be put in a stone vessel that is to be filled to the very brim. The stone water pot is then lowered into the waters of a mikvah, and as soon as the waters of the mikvah kiss the water at the brim of the stone water pot, it is brought up from the mikvah, sanctified. So Yeshua said to the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He then told them, now draw out of the water pot and give it to the master of ceremonies. This they did, but they did not mikvah the water. When the master of the feast tasted the water, which was turned into wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants which drew the water knew. As long as the servants kept their mouths shut, there would be no problem. But if the rabbi finds out that Yeshua had deliberately defiled his ceremonial stone water pot with the best Cabernet Sauvignon in the entire Jezreel Valley, he would have turned the tables upside down. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, at the beginning of the feast, everyone sets forth the choicest wine, and after men have well drunk, then they bring out that which is inferior. But you have kept the most excellent wine until now. I have no doubt that within minutes, the rabbi found out where the wine was coming from, and he would have gone Meshuggah. That is the reason that verse 11 says, this miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee is the first of many miracles Yeshua performed, which openly declared his righteous judgments. The King James says that his miracles manifested forth his glory. No, 
his miracles, every one of them manifested forth his doxa in Greek, his judgments. Every miracle he performed, from the defiling of the Pharisees' stone water pots to the making of mud from spit and dust on the Sabbath day to commanding a layman to carry his bedroll on the Sabbath, every one of his miracles violated rules of rabbinic Phariseeism. Every miracle, every miracle was a judgment against the made-up rules of a religious system that claimed to follow Moses but invented any commandments that they could get others to follow and subtracted any God-given commandments that they didn't want to follow. His disciples understood, and they believed him. After the wedding in Cana, Yeshua went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his five disciples. They remained there not many days. The Passover was at hand, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. After resting on the Sabbath, Yeshua and his entourage left early in the morning of the first day of the week in order to give them the maximum traveling time. It is now day 50 of Yeshua's ministry, the ninth day of the first month, Sunday, April 6, 27 of the Common Era. In just six days, the Passover sacrifice will be killed on Friday afternoon. That particular year, the high Sabbath that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread fell on the weekly Sabbath. Knowing the date of Passover in 27 of the Common Era allows us to reverse engineer Yeshua's previous week, which takes us day by day back to his mikvah in the Jordan. The next year, in 28 of the Common Era, the year of Yeshua's crucifixion, the Passover will be killed on a Wednesday, and the high Sabbath will fall two days before the weekly Sabbath. That is the only day from which one can accurately count the three days and three nights between the crucifixion and the resurrection, as specified in all four gospel records. I hope that I have given you an insider's perspective to the gospels. If you are not a natural-born Israelite, you, like Ruth, can choose to be grafted into the root and partake of the sap flowing from the Hebrew roots of the faith. There is no separation between the Jew and the Gentile if they are both connected to the root through Yeshua Messiah, the prophet we must hear and obey. This is Michael Rood, inviting you to join us again next time in our continuing journey through the Chronological Gospels. Shalom, peace.